All right, well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Christmas is all about condescension. Not the condescension we typically mean when we use that word. That kind of condescension is sort of arrogant, conceited disdain. It's when someone uses an air of superiority, perhaps using polite, innocuous, harmless language, but with hints at their greatness and your inadequacy. Entrepreneur.com lists several actions people find condescending. They include explaining things people already know, Interrupting someone to correct their pronunciation, it's espresso, not expresso. Get it right. And three, saying you actually like an idea. One of the final actions they list is literally patting someone on the head. Here's how the writer puts it. She says, if you pat someone's head, they will invariably be forced to look up at you in confusion or possibly an attempt to displace your hand And then you'll find yourself in the literal predicament of looking down on them. So if someone's head is within patting reach and you feel the urge to pat coming on, just remove yourself from the situation. It's these obnoxious, condescending behaviors that can irk us and make us want to scream. So how can Christmas be all about condescension? Well, it's not about the condescension you'd experience from someone who is putting on airs. It's the condescension we experience from someone who is in every way superior and yet stoops to love us. In fact, superior isn't even the right word. This person isn't even in the same conversation as us. This is God himself we're talking about. The creator, king, ordainer, and sustainer. He's not superior to us like a superhero. He is our maker. Without him, we cease to be. And yet at Christmas, we remember his condescension. See, another definition of that word condescension is this. Voluntary descent from one's rank or dignity in relations with an inferior. That's what Christmas is about. Voluntary descent. This descent changed everything 2,000 years ago. And this descent is what we celebrate as we begin the season of Advent, the season of anticipation, of waiting for the King. At Christ's first Advent, 2,000 years ago, he came to a people desperately in need of salvation. And in his second Advent, Jesus will come again to save, judge, and make everything right forever. So please follow along in your Bibles as I read those familiar words, Luke chapter 2, the first seven verses. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Three points this morning. A royal decree, a royal lineage, a humble birth. A royal decree, a royal lineage, a humble birth. First, we see a royal decree in verse 1. Look there with me. In those days, meaning kind of the days right on the the, the heels of chapter 1, John the Baptist born, coming to begin his ministry at some point. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So Jesus isn't the first king we encounter in this passage. Luke, the author here, tells us that all these things are coming to pass in the time and context and setting of the Roman Empire, specifically Caesar, Augustus. The Caesar decrees a registration for a census. And Joseph, submissive to the Roman authorities, complies. The first command in our text this morning is not from the Lord of the earth, but from the Lord of Rome. Caesar, formidable figure. And yet, behind all of this are God's sovereign fingerprints everywhere. Caesar may be manipulating the chessboard of empire, but God is orchestrating everything according to his plan. See, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, but the big picture of all this is that a greater decree has gone out from the Caesar of Caesars, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and that decree says, I have sent my son to take on human flesh and bear the sins of my people, saving them and setting them free. Nothing is going to derail that plan. Not even Rome. Get this. In fact, if you think about it, the decree of Caesar here is one that assists, not opposes, God's plan. Caesar here is helping to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. He's part of God's plan. He's not a threat to it. The New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says it like this. Luke portrays Augustus as the unknowing agent of God, whose decree leads to the fulfillment of the promised rise of a special ruler from Bethlehem. He says, little actions have great significance. For the ruler was to come out of Bethlehem, and only a governmental decree puts the parents in the right place. Thank you, Caesar. Thank you for your service. Dear Christian, perhaps right now you're wondering what God is up to in your life. 
and you've trusted him, you love him. But it's just that now you're not so sure what his plan is or if it's good for you. But listen, if God can sovereignly direct even the heart of the highest authority in the world so that his son comes and saves the world, I think you're safe. Even against all that the testimony or circumstances would provide, I think you're safe in trusting that he knows how to take care of you. He isn't threatened by your circumstances. He isn't thrown off by your weaknesses. His power conquers your sin. You can trust him. Here in this passage, we see earthly royalty before we see heavenly royalty. Behind it all, God is at work. That's the royal decree. Secondly, we see a royal lineage. So look with me at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. About a 90-mile trip. Perhaps they would have tried to sneak it in in six days between Sabbaths. It's about 15 miles a day then. Going uphill, up to Bethlehem, at least part of the way. But why is Joseph going to Bethlehem? Luke says, because he was the house of lin- and lineage of David. And at those words, Old Testament bells start ding-donging merrily on high, right? As we remember Gabriel's words to Mary in Luke 1, we put it all together and we see something major is happening. This is big picture stuff. In a way, all history has been leading to this point, to the fulfillment of God's promise to bring a king in the line of David. So back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, King David, you might remember the story, he wants to build a house for God. He's got these big plans. But God says, no, that's for your son. And yet, I'm going to make you a house. He turns it back on David. And and an amazing promise in 2 Samuel 7, this is what he says, The Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. That promise back in 2 Samuel 7 is echoed in Luke chapter 1 just a chapter before where we're at this morning, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, and, she's, and he says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. See, God promises people they would have a king whose kingdom, whose throne was going to last forever. And that the fulfillment of that promise has come. Jesus has come to sit on the throne of David and bring lasting rule. And so all of history is coming to focus in Bethlehem. After 400 years of silence, things are changing and they're changing rapidly, at least from our perspective. God's been at work the whole time. He didn't take one of those days in those 400 years off. Because even silence and waiting are part of his will for us. Even silence and waiting 
are part of God's will for his people. And now the king is coming. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. And the soul felt its worth, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Shai Lin has put it to music as well in his hip-hop song, The Greatest Story Ever Told, which is one of the greatest summaries of all the Bible that I've ever listened to. He sings, After 400 silent years filled with sighs and tears, in Bethlehem the Messiah appears. God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity. After 400 silent years of sighs and tears. And sighs and tears, right? They, they were the diet of God's people as they awaited his salvation. And as we await his salvation in the second advent, are not sighs and tears part of our diet regularly as well? And this world is full of sorrow, disappointment, and pain. And especially for those who belong to Jesus, we are called to suffer as he suffered. There's no way around that. Yet our sighs and tears are temporary. And they have purpose. They point us to the one whom our soul pines for. He has appeared. And a thrill of hope has captured a weary world and he will once again appear and our thrill of hope will then never dissipate. When he comes back, that old phrase, all good things must come to an end, will finally be proven untrue. So Christian, do you pine for the day of the Lord? Jacob, do you pine for the day of the Lord? Your Savior has promised to return. Do you long for him? Oh, Holy Night speaks of that new and glorious morn. There's going to be another one. And that morning will turn to day, bright and glorious day that will never again end in night. When our Savior returns to set up his kingdom on earth, talk about a thrill of hope. Talk about a thrill of joy. Talk about a thrill of hope realized. Christian, doesn't that stir your heart? Don't you, if it doesn't stir your heart, don't you want it to? Don't you want it to warm your affections for Christ? Don't you want that thrill of hope once more? So how might the hope of the second advent this season impact your Christmas? How might your heart become one that more and more anticipates and longs for fervently the certain hope of the return of the king? All right, royal decree, royal lineage. Finally, royal birth. No, yes, it is a royal birth, but the contrast here in Luke is that this is a humble birth. That's our final point, a humble birth. You might expect me to say royal birth, and knowing me, you'd want me to because I love alliteration and three points and all that good stuff. And so I could have easily made this the third point in keeping with the first two, made your notes easier. It's certainly a royal birth. It's the birth of a king, but there's a contrast readily apparent here in the text because Jesus, true royalty, true king, 
isn't born in pomp and luxury. He's born in a lowly city and placed in a feeding trough. Other world religions provide pathways for us to get to God. The gospel of the Christian faith presents us with a God made low to raise us up, as we sang earlier. It's stunning. It's humbling. One commentator notes how the arc of this passage, just, all, just these brief seven verses, the arc of this passage is like an upside-down Christmas tree. You see that? It starts out broad and grand, and then slowly descends to the most humble and mean. You see that? So just scan the, 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 those seven verses with me. Take the people who are mentioned. Augustus, Quirinius, Joseph, Mary, and then an unnamed little baby. And the baby is a glorious God of all, taking on human flesh. It's, it's the baby who's the king. Take, take the places that are mentioned. World, Syria, Galilee, Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Bethlehem. A feeding trough. It is not in the places of power that this baby is born, but in a manger. This is the condescending God, the one who voluntarily descends into our mess, our sin, our corruption, and lives in it with us. Not participating in it, Jesus would never sin. But feeling the painful impact of every sin, yes, over and over and over again. This is the humble king. This is wonderful condescension. Look at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. And laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Here, Jesus, having grown in Mary's womb, makes his appearance and breathes the air for the first time. He has entered time and space, the very time and space he created. He, the creator, has taken on creatureliness. His divine nature eternal from eternity past eternally existent above time now takes on human nature this is the incarnation the enfleshing of the son of god augustus is giving orders big man on the block jesus is born in a manger the striking contrast is evident But this upside-down scenario isn't going to last. It'll last for about 33 years. Jesus' humiliation will continue all the way to his death, even death on a cross. But folks, his, his humiliation is now completed. He's no longer humiliated. He's exalted. He's alive. And he's reigning. And Caesar, 
Well, Caesar's long gone. Caesar's not even dust anymore. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I wonder, I wonder if you're intrigued by the notion of a God who would stoop to save you. See, all of us want to be loved. We love being loved. But in our sin, all of us look for ultimate love in all the wrong places. We try to fill up our love tanks on our spouses, on our kids, in our friend groups, on social media. Terrible place for love. But each one of us has been designed to be loved by God. And find our greatest joy in knowing him and worshiping him and living for him. So friend, Jesus came so that you might know that love. He was born so that he might live a life of sinless perfection, though he was tempted and tried to the nth degree. And on the cross, Jesus, the sinless one, took on our sin so that he might be judged by God instead of us. And now if anyone would turn in repentance and faith and place their trust in Christ and what he has done on our behalf They will be set free from guilt and judgment and eternal death and brought into God's family forever. Will you not turn to this Savior today and be saved? The one made low to raise you up. In church, we have been redeemed by this amazing act of condescension, by Jesus' voluntary descent from throne to manger. So how are we to live in light of this wonderful Christmas text this season? Well, Aaron read it for us earlier in Philippians chapter 2. Turn with me there again if you have your Bibles. Philippians chapter 2. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Here, the Apostle Paul does all our application for us. How should we live in light of the incarnation? How should we live in light of this wonderful condescension? Paul gives us some inspired applications, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Church, Christmas ought to be for us annually like like a clicking of the refresh button of Christian humility. Refresh, refresh, refresh. Jesus' condescension to us in our sin should remind us again of who we were, outcasts, unworthy of his love, and who we are now, beloved family. We are to have his mind, not putting on airs of superiority, but living humbly and lowly like Christ. Obviously, this is not the stuff we do to earn spiritual favor or score religious points with God. 
It's simply how we live as those who have been saved by a humble Savior. This is our new life in Christ. Christians are humble. An arrogant, conceited Christian is an inconsistent, immature Christian, if he's a Christian at all. When we remember what Jesus has done for us, we will not hesitate to stoop low, recognize our sin, humble ourselves, and love others freely, even those whom society deems unlovable. This is the mind of Christ. So I wonder, Christian, how and where are you prone to pride right now in your life? Where do you think you just got it all figured out? Where are you tempted to believe you are more worthy of God's love than someone else? Look at the manger. Look at the the one, the only one who deserved all glory and who freely gave it up to rescue you who hated him in your sin. As those who follow him, we ought to also be humble and lowly. An old shaker hymn says, lay me low, lay me low, lay me low, where the Lord can find me, where the Lord can own me, where the Lord can bless me. This Christmas season, Christian, what would it look like for you to count others more significant than yourselves? What would it look like to have the mind of Christ? This Christmas season, what What things need to fall into place for you to be happy? And what if those things were tweaked a little bit? So it wasn't all about you being happy and perfectly contented, but counting others more significant than yourself. I think that would be the best celebration of Christmas you could do. Jesus humbled himself to save his people. We are to humble ourselves and stoop to love those who are undeserving and unlovable. That's how John and Betty Stam lived. The Stams were missionaries with the China Inland Mission, Hudson Taylor's mission during the the first half of the 20th century. And in 1934, there was more volatility in their area. They were captured abducted, kept overnight, and in the morning, both John and Betty were tragically, violently killed. Miraculously, their, their little daughter, I think it was three or five months at the time, was, was spared. They had hidden her away, and she was found later. Their great-nephew, Chip Stam, who was a music teacher at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I think David Snyder knew him personally, if I remember correctly, uh, once reflected on his great uncle and great aunt who had died that way in 1934. And and he wrote this, though this was a very dangerous time for both the Chinese Christians and for foreign missionaries, Frank Houghton, who worked for the mission, decided he needed to begin a tour throughout the country to visit various missionary outposts. While traveling over the mountains of Sichuan, the powerful and comforting words of 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, were transformed into a beautiful Christmas hymn. Chip Stam continues. He says, I love the musical gesture of the first line. This is music talk, right? 
thou who wast rich, kind of a descent, right? A voluntary descent, even musically. Beyond, we vault up each time we think about the, the riches of this one, beyond all splendor. A melodic reminder that Christ ascended to take us up. An ascent that begins in the here and now. Emmanuel within us dwelling. See, it's believed that John and Betty Stam and the, the John and Betty Stam's death and the persecution of that time in China provided part of the backstory behind Frank Houghton writing that beloved Christmas hymn, Thou Who Wast Rich. The Stams believed that because Jesus had condescended to them, because the rich king of the universe had taken on their poverty, because the ruler of all traded his throne for a manger, well, they could give their lives in humble, loving service to him. That's how we can apply Christmas. That's how we can apply the incarnation. In his commentary on Luke's gospel, Pastor Mike McKinley, whom many of you know, he writes, Before his incarnation, the Son of God was rich beyond anything Augustus could ever have imagined. But for our sake, he stooped to be born not merely as a human, that alone would have been incredible condescension, but as a powerless infant. Church, Jesus is the king greater than Caesar, the one coming in the royal line of David, but who comes as a humble infant laid in a manger. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. We adore this king. We live for this king. We long for this king to return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. Each one of us knows our own heart and where we're prone to pride and airs of superiority. Forgive us for being Christians who love to prove ourselves holier or better or smarter than others around us. Lord, as we think about the incarnation, convict us of arrogance and conceit and lay us low where you can find us, own us, and bless us. Thank you, Jesus, for laying aside your throne for a manger. We are filled with gratitude. And we ask that you would come again and soon.